Get all your NHL playoff action at Sports Interaction before the game starts, live in play, or how your favorite player does and how they'll perform. Doing it right since 1997, Sports Interaction is Canada's sports book. With the most competitive odds, Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now to see all that sports betting has to offer. Head over to sportsinteraction.com slash SDPN. That's sportsinteraction.com slash SDPN. 19 plus, please play responsibly. This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Show me the money. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Welcome to Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wilde. How are you, Adam? I'm doing great, Alan. Thanks for having me again. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you. Great. Always great to see you, Adam. Our guest this week is an award-winning journalist and author, he started doing hockey analysis in 1979, covering the Toronto Maple Leafs for the Toronto Sun. He's worked with Rogers Sportsnet, uh, Hockey Night in Canada for, for many years, uh, CBC Radio and TV. He's twice served as the president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. He's written numerous books, including 100 Years, 100 Moments, A Centennial of NHL Hockey, and Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life with Rick Vive. Uh, he's, he has a new book out right now titled 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. It's a fabulous book. A big welcome to the podcast, Scott Morrison. Alan, Adam, thank you very much for having me. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, just uh, uh, we just had our little COVID scare in our family over the last week, but uh, everybody's uh, doing well out of that. And, uh, you know, the book is taken off uh, and I'm glad to see that because it's, it's an important part of our history and uh, Canadian hockey history and Canadian history period. So I'm glad people are embracing it. Well, just to provide a little background, uh, I was actually at game one of the series in Montreal, Montreal Forum in September 1972, my dad brought me to the game. I was seven years old, and I remember everything about the game. I remember Prime Minister Trudeau coming out on the red carpet uh, before the game uh, to drop the, the puck. Uh, my hero and idol, Ken Dryden, was in goal for Team Canada. And there was an overwhelming feeling in the building that this was going to be a slaughter of massive proportions. Is it going to be nine, nothing, 10, nothing, 12, nothing, 15, nothing. We have all these incredible, great NHL stars playing against a bunch of Soviet nobodies that nobody ever heard of uh, who uh, internationally anyways, were still considered amateurs. Mm -hmm. And how could they match up against the great NHL stars? And uh, I remember vividly game one starting uh, the first two shots on goal. Uh, Canada scored two nothing early and the route was on and it certainly didn't end like that. <laughs> so with um, with that little preamble, why don't we talk a little bit about how this series even came together? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, opening night was a shocker, a shocker for all of Canada and a shocker for the Soviet Union, because not even they they were confident coming in, but they didn't see that happening. But 
part of the roots of, of the series where, the, the, as you mentioned, Alan, the Soviets were dominating internationally for many years. And ironically, it was only a couple of weeks ago, the 50th anniversary of when they actually signed the document the, to have the series, they lost in the world championships that year. And that was the first time they'd lost in a long while. So they were dominating internationally. And I don't want to say they were getting bored with it, but they were they felt like they needed another challenge. And of course, the politics of the day, especially with that being a communist country behind the Iron Curtain, when you could throw athletes out and put them on a stage, or whether it's the Worlds or the Olympics or anything, and put them on a podium and win a, a, a gold medal, that was the best propaganda you had. That was the best selling point for your country on the world stage to say, look at us, we're the best. And that was part of what they were thinking in this series is that they were going to come out and they were confident that they could win. And, uh, but at the very least prove how good they could be and that this would be another selling point for how good this, the Russians were at that time, the Soviet Union. And so that was part of their impetus. And Canada, of course, was only able to send our best amateurs by and large, and we weren't winning and we weren't winning for a long time. And that was becoming frustrating. And uh, there had been a push to try and get professionals allowed into the Olympics and the, the worlds back in the, the late 60s, early 70s. We are allowed a handful of players, but then that was scuttled by the IOC and the IIHF. And uh, so we pulled out of the international hockey for a couple of years because we we're supposed to hold the wor host the worlds in 1970 in Montreal and Winnipeg. But so part of Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister at the time, part of his mandate in his election campaign was that he was going to help fix this hockey problem in the country and Hockey Canada was created. And so there was political undercurrents to all of this, as well as just the, the hockey bodies wanting to do something different and improve certainly our international state at the time. And so uh, all of those factions came together and, uh, you know, Alan Eagleson and the NHL Players Association became a big player in it. And because uh, Alan had a vision, he'd been sitting in his backyard in 1966, having a barbecue with Bobby Orr and Carl Brewer and had a vision listening to the World Cup of Soccer on, on radio and said, why can't we do this for hockey? And then obviously, uh, well, once upon a time, that became the Canada Cup, but only because this series started. So there was a lot of different forces pulling independently in some ways, pulling together to make this happen. But Trudeau also, because of this, the way the country was going at the time, felt that a hockey series like this, because we were still trying to have, with the Cold War going on, economic relations and that with the, with the Soviets. Uh, but he felt something like that might be a feel-good moment that the, the country needed. And let me let me there was also why. 1970 in, in Montreal. I think from, from um, the early 70s until the series started in 72, there, there was a lot of turmoil inside Canada and a lot of division between Western Canada and Quebec and specifically a lot of turmoil inside Quebec with uh, the 1970 October crisis, the FLQ kidnappings, mailboxes blowing up and so forth. So that was the setting really, I think, for um, the idea that this series could somehow unify Canada. Totally. And the War Measures Act was invoked back then as well. And 
1970 because of what was happening in Quebec. And so, yeah, I mean, we'd gone from a high of 67 with our centennial and the expo and the country feeling good and full of hope and promise and growth. And then the 70s just didn't start very well. And so, yeah, that was part of it, that this would be something that could uh, make the country feel good about itself and, and hopefully bring it together. And in the end, it did in a much different way than was envisioned in the beginning. But the players and the fans and, you know, will tell you that, you know, during those days of the final games, especially of the series, that you weren't a Westerner, you weren't an Easterner, you weren't a Quebecer, you weren't an Ontarian, whatever. You were a Canadian because it was all about winning that series. And it mattered to win that series, not just for hockey pride, but for national pride. Right. Adam? Well, I, you know what, I, I, I wanted to, to frame the FLQ crisis, guys, because I think it's really important for people of my generation and younger um, who know very little about it. You know, Canadians are notoriously bad at telling our own history. So, you know, framing that background a little bit, you know, I, I guess the basic premise is that, you know, these were political agitators trying to have Quebec be its own sovereign nation. Is, is that correct in a general sense? Yes, very much so. They wanted in, <clears throat> independence for the province, and but they were uh, willing to go to, you know, nefarious ends to make it happen. And there was the, the British, uh, well, Pierre Laporte, the minister in the Quebec government, and James Cross, who was uh, from the Br British consulate, uh, were both kidnapped and, and one was killed, Pierre Laporte. And so they were willing to go to uh, very awful ends to try and make this happen and so it was a it was a scary scary time in our country and as i mentioned they the prime minister invoked the war measures act where you couldn't go out on the streets after dark and and things like that and uh so and you know alan you were in the province at the time very young mind you but still you would have felt it in your own way sure and and uh, there were uh troops uh in Montreal deployed to the streets. And I vividly recall driving with my dad one day through the streets of Montreal with Canadian soldiers with their guns out all along St. Catherine Street. And um, there was a, uh, an intense manhunt going on, trying to find uh, Pierre Laporte and James Cross, who were kidnapped. Um, there was extra security and troops around all of the uh, top political leaders, the mayor of Montreal, Jean Drapeau, uh, everybody was in fear of, of being uh, targeted. Um, and uh, I remember my dad called it martial law. And that's really what it was. We, it was called the War Measures Act. But basically, martial law was declared in Canada. It's a very, very different Canada than, than we seem to, you know, we think of ourselves, right? We don't think of ourselves in those terms. No, very different. And, you know, I think set the world stage, too, a little bit here is that even though, you know, I say in the book how the world was a different place back then. And all of a sudden, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine right now makes you feel like it's not that much different, sadly and tragically. But the world was different back then from the perspective of you didn't have the World Wide web and social media obviously didn't exist. And even the, you know, the exposure 
of, of understanding the world from a television perspective was much more limited. And what we knew of the Soviets back then were they were this black and white image on the nightly news, the scary image because they were a communist country and all the, you know, they'd invaded Czechoslovakia and uh, they were this big, this big scare to us and, and rightly so. And the cold war was on where it was East versus West. And, you know, that, which is essentially the U S versus the Soviets at the time. And so, you know, we saw them on, on the world stage in, in Olympics and, uh, and hockey and all sorts of things like that. But they were the, they were the, the evil empire in our world at the time. And nobody traveled over there back then. I mean, it was, or very few really. And so we didn't know much about them other than we knew that we should fear them because they were these, the horrible communist country. Yeah. So let's, let's turn to the, the series itself. The players, Team Canada players did not get paid for, uh, for their participation in the tournament. What was in it for them? How, how did you get the top NHL players of the day to, to commit to a month of their time plus to, to, to play in this tournament? Well, they got, and nobody can remember the precise amount, but they got a couple thousand dollars or maybe as much as five, which I guess in 72 is sort of decent kind of change to be thrown in your pocket, but Nobody can really remember how much it was. And that tells me that uh, everybody got a different amount, depending on whether you're a client of a certain agent who was running the show or. <laughs> uh, and out of the earnings of that uh, money was supposed to go into the pension fund, the NHL players pension fund. So uh, nobody can really know. Nobody knows how much went in there, although there were estimates that it was like 800,000 or something in that that ballpark but back then you didn't say no Alan you know it was just you know Alan Eagleson ran the Players Association with a somewhat of an iron fist even though it was in its infancy still really at that point and you know you did what you were told as a player and there was a pride factor in being selected although you know Phil and Tony Esposito and Phil wrote the the uh, forward for my book and uh, did obviously long interviews but he turned them down twice. He got a call from Eagleson, a call from Sinton, and he said, "No, I got my I got my hockey school this summer. I'm not uh, I'm not playing part of this. What do I want to do? The season's long enough. They just want a Stanley Cup." And can you believe it? It ended in May. Oh <laughs> man, no, I can't. Yes. So uh, you know, and, and a lot of the players back then did have summer jobs. A lot of them worked for the breweries in promotional work some had most had hockey schools and others from smaller communities worked on their family farms and that's what you did back then in the summer but for some it was an honor to be asked and selected for some it was an inconvenience and uh uh but ultimately they ended up inviting 35 players to camp because they didn't have <clears throat> back then anybody to play against for exhibition games to get ready for this so they had to have inter-squad games and what came to haunt them as the series unfolded unexpectedly was that they had promised all those 35 players they were going to play one or two games in the series because as Alan said earlier it was going to be a lark that was going to be a walkover for Canada so be nice and easy everybody plays everybody's happy but not so much and I remember watching the interest games on tv they were broadcast <laughs> yeah. yeah that's yeah. because uh, the, the tv rights were owned by 
in conjunction with talking about your odd triplet, uh, especially as history unfolded, by Eagleson, Bobby Orr, and Harold Ballard, then the owner of the Maple Leafs. Wow. Bobby Orr owned hockey rights while well, being Eagle, a player. Eagle was his agent, and he ran Bobby's enterprises and Eagleson enterprises, and Ballard got in there because he smelled money. And, <laughs> uh, of course, the training camp was in Toronto, and game two was in Toronto. And uh, so, yeah, they were they got together to do the, the TV rights deal. That would have been Eagleson and Ballard. Bobby wouldn't have. You know, Bobby wasn't a part of it. He was still playing and would have been more focused on that for sure or trying to play at that point because of his knee. Right. Now, the deal was uh, effectively with um, Hockey Canada and the NHL uh, with the IIHF and the Soviet Union. But there were several players who were initially selected to the team that were not allowed to play because they had signed with the WHA uh, that had just started, uh, just been created. So I remember uh, as, as a seven-year-old reading a headline in the Hockey Digest that I used to get uh, on a uh, monthly basis. And the headline was, how in the hall could we lose? And the irony is, Gordie Howard retired. That was his 70, 71 uh, was his, uh, uh, I believe, last year in Detroit. Yeah. And and Bobby Hall had signed his groundbreaking contract with the Winnipeg Jets and had jumped to the WHA. So he was out. Um, Bobby Orr was selected to the team, was with the team the entire ride, but never played a game because uh, of, a, I think, a knee surgery. Um, and he was out, never played. And then there were a group of other players who were in the process of jumping to the WHA, but had not yet signed contracts with those teams yet, but did not have NHL contracts. And by memory, Jerry Cheevers, who went from uh, Boston to the Cleveland Crusaders, um, there was um, uh, J.C. Tremblay, who went to the Quebec Nordiques. So he was out. He certainly at the time would have been one of uh, the defensemen under consideration and, uh, and Derek Sanderson, mm. right. Who also jumped to the WHA. So they were out. So it, it, it really was um, an NHL all-star team with Canadian players, but they excluded some really good players right off the hop. Yeah, no question. And, and it was an agreement between the NHL with Eagleson obviously involved as the player, NHL Players Association and then Hockey Canada and, and, the other, and the other bodies. And a lot of the American team owners didn't want their players taking part because there was nothing in it for them. And so uh, one of the concessions in all of the negotiations was that it would only be NHL players that they wouldn't showcase a Bobby Hall or a Trombley or achievers who were going to the rival league and the rival league was throwing around tons of money at the time. So the rule was if you weren't under contract to an NHL team on the eve of training camp, August 13th of that summer, then you weren't eligible to play. And, you know, there's a huge outroar, uproar rather because of, uh, you know, Bobby Hall being excluded. It's, it's funny because when he was first asked, he said he didn't want any part of giving up his summer 
uh, the timing was wrong because nobody would be in condition. And he was pretty, pretty uh, wise in that prediction. Uh, but then once everything evolved and everything came together, he wanted to be a part of it. And, he, and so there were groups, protest groups that had pins and billboards made up that across the country to haul with Russia. <laughs> was was their mantra and even it got to the point that Pierre Trudeau the prime minister at the time weighed in on it and met with Clarence Campbell the president to say you got to let this guy play and secretly Eagleson wanted it too because he wanted to make sure that team was the best it possibly could be and sell tickets and all the rest of it um but they they the NHL owners wouldn't waver wow so logistically, you know, I mean, dealing with government on anything, getting a passport in Canada is difficult right now because the lineups are so long because everybody wants to go. How do you get this off the ground with a government as bureaucratic as the Soviet Union was at that point? And obviously the Canadian government, too. Like, it's got to be a bit of a nightmare. Well, the Soviets were actually, you could say, were the ones that first floated the idea of a series like this, because, as I mentioned, you know, they were they were dominating internationally and there was a, a, a newspaper column in one of the Moscow dailies. Izvestia. Izvestia, yeah. It yeah. suggested that, uh, that something like this was the logical next step, that they needed to test themselves and see how they measured against the best on the other side of the pond, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a, a fellow by the name of Gary Smith, who's got a book out now as well, who was working in the Canadian embassy at the time, his job was to monitor what was being said in the media over there. And he saw this and he knew immediately that when they put something like that in print, it's not just the writer with a bright idea that's being put there for a reason to float the idea and get it out. And so he contacted, you know, back to Ottawa and the Canadian government said, Hey, here's what they're saying over here. And he knew that Trudeau had been getting his sticking his nose in the hockey world to try and, you know, fix our international problems and wanted the feel good story. And so, uh, so the government's got on board pretty quickly along with the hockey people. Wow. So, so they agreed on four games in Canada, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. And then uh, team Canada would fly over to Sweden and play a couple of friendly games uh, against, uh, I believe it was a Swedish national team. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then they would move over to Moscow and play four games in Moscow in the old Luzhniki arena. Uh, and then after, uh, Moscow, they would fly to Prague <laughs> and play one game against the Czech national team at the end of the series on the way home. And, uh, and, and one thing that I, I think gets lost from that period of time is that after the disaster of game four in Vancouver, the trip into Sweden and restarting the series in Moscow was two full weeks. There was a two week break between the games. <laughs> and, um, and, and if I recall, you know, Canada, uh, lost the opening game against uh, the Soviet Union 7-3 in Montreal uh, with Ken Dryden in the net. They then went to Toronto, Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, Team Canada won 4-1. Pete Mahovlich with that highlight reel uh, goal uh, uh, going around 
uh, the D-man and scoring on Tretiak, the uh, Soviet goalie. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, they moved to Winnipeg. Uh, and, and that game ended a four, four tie. Uh, and there was, you know, no overtime and, and, and then they head to Vancouver and, and really now team Canada is on the ropes and they lose in Vancouver five, three. And, uh, and, and really team Canada was in disarray Mm -hmm. and the outrage coast to coast of fans and media piling on against these guys at that time was incredible. Uh, do you want to you want to talk a little bit about that, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, you, you have the shocker of opening night in Montreal. You get relief bouncing back in game two. And I should say they knew, the players knew, even when they were up 2-0 in that six minutes into that first game in Montreal, they were sitting on the bench saying, we've got a problem here. Like these guys are good and they're in great shape and they're nothing like what we were told they were going to be like, Oh, this isn't going to be a fun, friendly series. This thing's going to be a battle. Like we're in deep here. And then they get the Winnipeg, as you mentioned, they blow a four two lead Bobby Hall sitting in the stands, they tie and then have a horrible game against Vancouver. And the fans really, really turned on them in Vancouver and the country felt almost betrayed by the team, I guess might be the best way to put it, but they were certainly disappointed by them with them. And, but nobody had, or very few people had an appreciation of how good the Soviets might be. And it was all about, it wasn't, nobody could see that they were good. It was that we were bad and, Mm. and the players were feeling it and they got booed mercilessly in that Vancouver building that night. And that spawned the, the famous, I guess, post-game interview with Phil Esposito on national TV where he with just, Johnny Esau, with Johnny Esau, what folks were doing our best. We give up our time. We're, we're, we're fighting for our country, but these other guys are really good too. So just like stay with us, get behind us and uh, we're doing our best. And it was a real plea. And it's one that the players themselves didn't hear because he was on the ice. It was on TV. They're in the room. And again, the world didn't share information the way we'd, share it today in a nanosecond but uh, but the word got out to the canadian fans and by the time they got to moscow it was a much different uh, reaction to how the country was feeling about that team but alan to your point that stop in uh, the two-week break and the, the eight days that they spent in sweden that was the turning point in many ways in the series because that's when a lot of tough decisions were made about that group of 35 well guess what you're not all going to play we have to break this down to be a team of 21 or 22 that are going to be in and out of those final four games. And everybody's going to have a role and an assignment. And so there was some hurt feelings there, which we can talk about, but they, you know, the other thing that was different back in the day. So you had the players on that team came from 10 different NHL teams, but you know, bulks of them from New York and Chicago and Boston and Toronto and Montreal predominantly and they all hated each other back then. There was no fraternizing. Your clients couldn't fraternize back then. <laughs> no, and and that was very much promoted by NHL owners. Yeah. They didn't want players from other teams to ever have relationships, to be friends. Uh, they wanted them to hate each other 24 hours a day, in season, out of season. It was us and everyone else is the enemy because they didn't want 
the players to organize under an NHLPA and seek rights and benefits through collective bargaining, as was starting to happen predominantly in baseball. But there was certainly a movement afoot in all the other pro sports leagues that these unions, these player unions, were becoming a little bit too militant and uppity for some of these owners. And they wanted to promote hate between these guys. Hmm. And and that, beyond all of those reasons, became a huge challenge for Harry Sinton and John Ferguson, the two coaches, is you got to pull these guys together as a team at some point. You can't have all those factions when you're trying to, it's, it's one thing to be that way off the ice, but all of a sudden, if you're in the same room and you're on the same rink with the same sweater, you better pull together. And, and that's what happened finally in Sweden is that I think there was a real understanding. At first it was, we're on our own here, folks. Our families don't like us anymore. The fans hate us. The country's left us. Like when they flew out of Toronto, there was nobody at the airport to see them go. It was just pathetic. And, and the media had turned on them as well. And by and large, the media turned on them. So they were feeling it everywhere. And I mean, even after that Vancouver game, uh, Espo and Cashman and Bill Goldsworthy and a couple others went out for a bite to eat after the game. And the fans were taunting them in the restaurant. They ended up getting into a fight in the restaurant. The cops got in and got everybody out of there and kept it hush-hush and all the rest, the rest. But that's how the guys felt. They said, we're afraid to stick our nose out the hotel door because somebody is going to bark at you. But again, that, that sentiment changed by the time, as a team, they had a different mindset by the time they got to Moscow. And then when they got there and the walls on the, uh, the hallway outside the dressing room were papered with like 10,000 telegrams and postcards and wishes of support and good feelings and all of that. And 3,000 crazy fans that flew over to watch the games there and were absolutely amazing in terms of how they impacted the team. Yeah, there was a chant. There was a chant uh, in Luzhniki Arena by the Canadian fans uh, that, that lasted almost the entire game. It was uh, Da, Da, Canada, Niet, Niet, Soviet. <laughs> yeah, and, and you would hear that and you'd see the entire crowd and, and there was no glass. It was uh, a cage behind the nets, a wire cage behind the nets, and, uh, and, and, and the fans all dressed, um, many of them in, in, in suits with ties. And here was these 3,000 Canadians waving Canadian flags, chanting uh, the whole game. <laughs> which, which is something that the, the, the Soviet fans didn't do back then. You sat, you watched, and... You whistled if you didn't like if you didn't like something that happened on the ice, but otherwise you sat there and then you waited for a goal and then you you gave it some applause. But to have these yahoos carrying on and uh, (laughs) having a great time was a a shocker to the to the people over there. Some of the players obviously had seen it in Canada, but uh, it was a new experience from that perspective. And that game, game five, you know, they're up four one. They end up uh, losing five to four leaving them in a scenario where they had to win the final three to survive. But at the end of that game, unlike the end of the Vancouver game, as they were leaving the ice dejected and all the rest of it, uh, those 3,000 Canadian fans stood and gave them a standing ovation as they left. And those players to this day will tell you they had chills as, as, as hurt and angry 
and disappointed as they were with the outcome, they had chills because of what those fans did. And that was something that helped. It was just another little thing, you know, they sound like cliches, but another little thing that helps motivate you for the next day. Right. I got to ask, how do you buy a ticket to a Canada-Soviet Union game in the Soviet Union? I so mean, they're, was, all, they're all done by tours. Oh. So they're all tour packages that were sold prior to the series. Okay. These people, these people really locked out in that, you know, they were going to go over and see a country you probably would never go to otherwise uh, at, at that time. And, uh, and, uh, and they were expecting that Canada was going to be up for nothing in the series and going to win the next four games over there. And this was all going to be one happy, happy time and happy party. And they walked into one of the greatest sporting dramas ever. 3000 of them. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So after game five, and this is a big one, right? And a lot of Canadians forget this part of the series too, is, you know, you, you did have that cheer, but several players left the team. Canadian players leaving Team Canada, not something you've ever heard about probably before, definitely not before, and definitely not since. What was the, you know, what was the reaction to that? Why did it happen? What, what happened there, Scott? Well, part of that Sweden experience, too, is that, uh, you know, as they came together as a team, is that the coaching staff and the management group realized that, okay, we'd made the promise about everybody going to play, but if we have any hope of winning this series, that can't happen and won't happen. And we have to pair the playing group down to a, a much smaller size of, you know, I think it was 20, 21 players at that point that would cycle in and out of those final four games and everybody would have to roll, have a role. We're not going to be introducing new players and new lines. We got to, we got to pull together. And so the players were told that, that was going to happen. And they're also given the opportunity that if you didn't want to stay and be a part of it, um, essentially watching, then you could leave if you wanted. And if you want to stay, then we're happy to have you. And initially there was talk of as 12 to 15 players had talked about saying that they would just go home at that point and leave the team as the team. And when push came to shove, it was only, uh, you know, four of them that, ultimately decided to leave and uh, Vic Hadfield, uh, Josh Gavermaw, whose wife was having some pregnancy problems. So there was, you know, a backstory to that. Rick Martin and Gilbert Perot, who were both with the players and Punch Imlac, who was running the Sabres back then, was putting big pressure on them to come back to their NHL training camp as opposed to sitting watching the series. So sadly, that message was supposed to have been uh, announced, according to Hadfield, by Alan Eagleson, and it wasn't explained that way that the players were told they could leave. Instead, they were portrayed when they got home, especially as being traitors that they traitors. Were off on their country. Wow. Yep. yep. I, I remember the media back then was just vicious on how these guys could abandon their team and labeled them all traitors for, for leaving at that time and coming home. And, and really, none of them were. So it was, no. Wow. Wow. There's, so that dispels a myth. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, the most outspoken um, was Vic, and he didn't like Eagleson to begin with. They'd had friction from the minute. <clears throat> Alan, <clears throat> excuse me, Alan had come in to run the, the Players Association. And, uh, but beyond that, he, 
you know, he started in the first game and then that with his line, the gag line with the Gilbert, the late Raj Gilbert and, and Jean Rattel, and they didn't have success that night. So they broke up the line and, you know, he was in and out, but he wasn't very happy with it. And there was pressure on these guys too, that people don't realize um, that their teams were saying like our training camps are going here, guys, especially the American teams. Cause they, they didn't care about team Canada and the Soviets. It was get, get your butt back here. And we got exhibition games and we got to make money back here. And mm-hmm. so a lot of those guys were, were hearing it from their teams, the pressure to, uh, to go home. A couple of things going on behind the scenes. I think everyone could agree that team Canada, the, the players were horribly out of shape even um, after the Team Canada training camp and the inter-squad games. Really, the players back then didn't train in the off-season at all and, and used all of training camp and maybe even the first couple of weeks of the regular season to get themselves into shape. And the Soviet players were in phenomenal shape. They were living on Montreal time for two weeks in uh, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, before flying over to Montreal. I mean, they had really prepared and done everything they could to come into the series and show their best. And from the, the, the fitness level, conditioning level, um, the level of seriousness that the Canadian brass took the series and that this is going to be such a cakewalk, I, I think that had a real impact on the results of the first four games. Oh, guaranteed. Because as you mentioned, like back then, a lot of these guys had promotional jobs. They did in the summer. They had their hockey schools. They worked on their farms. There wasn't ice available in most places to even skate in the summer back then, unlike now. And you didn't have all these off ice coaches that you have now. And yeah, you waited till training camp to get going. And even though they had their training camp and their uh, scrimmages and air squad games, because as Alan, you mentioned is uh, because it was that mindset that this was just a fun series and it was going to be a lark beating these guys. Nobody was in the right frame of mind. I, I, I mentioned in the book that Brad Park who lived in Toronto in the off season, uh, his wife was pregnant. So he would go home at night during training camp. And he said, I'd come back in the morning the next day. And he said to, to go to practice and I'd look at the boys and say, yeah, they had a good one last night. <laughs> <laughs> so the guys were having some fun and uh, yeah. And their, their mind just wasn't prepared for they physically and emotionally, they weren't prepared for what they got into. And it wasn't until they got to Moscow that they had some conditioning at that point. And even though they lost that fifth game, they felt good about how they were playing or felt better about it felt better about their conditioning and their minds. I like to say it is uniquely Canadian. And one of the great lines I've ever heard was from John Ferguson Jr. After watching a world junior tournament where the Canadians, not unlike a series like this, came back and they and they ultimately beat the Soviets in that series to win the gold medal. And they kind of did it as underdogs as it turned out. But afterwards, he just said, you know, the one thing, says you can't teach when it comes to hockey you can't teach canadian and there's just that 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 being about it and you know there there was the never say die in that series and then you think of 87 and there was a similar type of 
scenario there when they got to the final. So anyway, that that you can't teach Canadian mentality had crept into the series then. And it was more than just a hockey series at that point. That's when it became, and I hate, you know, they hate it. I hate it. They use that word war. You don't want to diminish it, especially against what's happening in our world now. But for them, it was a war on ice. And there was a lot of hate, real hatred at that point. And they, they really got the feeling then that they were playing for this, the maple leaf on their, on their chest. And it was more than just hockey pride because that was a big part of it then for them as individuals. And, but it was pride of country and pride of way of life because that was, again, that backdrop of what the world was like in 1972. What, what I find fascinating is that John Ferguson was named the assistant coach uh, and he had just retired from the NHL and Harry Sinden was the head coach of the Boston Bruins. Uh, they had just won the Stanley cup. Um, and, and, and here you've got John Ferguson, who I believe Harry originally wanted to be a player on the team. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, no, no, I'm retired. So he goes, well, okay, you'll be my assistant coach. Uh, and, and, you know, John Ferguson, the most feared enforcer of his era uh, in the National Hockey League. Really, the team took on some of his character and personality once they got over Russia and realized it was now war on ice. I mean, could there have been a better person behind the bench than John Ferguson at that time? No, absolutely. And you know, Harry had been removed from the game for two years because he won the cup with Boston in 70, 70. and then got into the, the money dispute. He said it was like, he says, now he says players walked for five million. I walked for 5,000. But, <laughs> uh, so being available and not being attached to a team made him a, you know, a prime choice to, to run that team. And then, yeah, he'd wanted John to be a to play on the team and they could have used him. That's for sure. Because he was an enforcer, but he was an enforcer who could play, you know, score you 20 goals, that type of thing. Um, but, yeah, a lot of his personality really crept into the personality of that team as the, as the series evolved. And, you know, the famous moment uh, of game six when, you know, Harlamov was one of the best players on that Soviet team. And from day one, the Clark Ellis Henderson line had, be assigned, had been assigned to play against him, Ellis to check him. And partway through game six, Ferguson turns to the team and says, boys, this guy's killing us. We got to do something. Dot, dot, dot. Bobby and Clark. Bobby Clark picked it up and said, okay, I will take care of business and went out and put on the uh, now infamous slash that uh, broke his ankle. I don't think it broke his ankle, but fractured it. He came back for game eight, but he was a severely different limited player from then. But, you know, and one thing I want to say there too, is that Bobby's been vilified over the years for that play. And yeah, it was a nasty slash. I don't think he was intending to break an ankle or fracture one, but he was sending a message. And the only thing is that there were no saints on the ice in that series. And a lot of the players, some players are still to this day uh, pissed at him for it. And it's funny because at the time there wasn't any outrage <laughs> on the Canadian side of the equation because they won the game. Um, but as the years went on, it took on a greater magnitude. And, uh, but a lot of those players said too, you know, he said that 
there was a lot of dirty stuff happening on both sides of the ice. And Ron Ellis shared the story about, I think it was Mihailov kicked Gary Bergman. Yes. In the yes. shins. And the skate went right through the shin the guard. Shin pad. And he said, Ronnie says, after the game, I'm watching uh, Bergie and, and he'd limped off the ice and his leg is just crimson red. And he says, he turns, he takes off his skate and he turns the boot upside down and there's like a stream of blood comes pouring out of the boot. He said, so a lot of dirty things happen on both sides. And he said, himself included, and others admitted the same thing because of the intensity of that series and the pressures. A lot of guys did things they wouldn't normally do, but they did them because it was all about winning. Right. So let's set the stage here. Game five, uh, Canada was up 4-1 and ended up losing 5-4. Now Canada's backs are up against the wall. They have to win three in a row. They're down 3-1-1. The the next game, game six, Canada wins 3-2. Do you recall who scored the winning goal there? The same guy who would have scored the winning goal in game five had they not blown the lead and went on to score the winning goal two more times, Paul Henderson. Okay, so <laughs> this is the beginning of, of this remarkable three-game stretch where Paul Henderson scores the winning goal in game six. We go to game seven. Canada wins 4-3. Paul Henderson again scores the winning goal. The series is now tied. What is going on in Canada right now with the series tied? The series is uh, Canada is going crazy. I was just going to say one thing is that goal that he scored in game seven was absolutely spectacular where he basically, it was a one-on-four rush and he managed to split the defense and get in and beat Trechak for that winning goal. And as Paul called it, the greatest, maybe not the biggest, but it was big at the time, but the greatest (laughs) goal that he'd ever scored from a skill perspective. But Canada, I think from game five on, you know, the previous book I'd wrote about this was, was a great title as well as this one is, but it was the days Canada stood still and the country did stand still. And the TV yeah. numbers for the final game were uh, almost 16 million out of a population of roughly 25 million watched that game. Like that's staggering. That's a country that stopped. And Alan, you know, I was lucky. My parents let me stay home from school to watch those final three games. But in the schools, they wheeled, you know, the TVs into gymnasiums and classrooms. Kids were allowed to have transistor radios and earplugs in their pocket, in their pockets. And I, I remember seeing pictures of people on, on Young Street in downtown Toronto looking through at the, part, the Eaton store window, this massive window where they lined up about, hundred TVs that they were selling off and every one of them had the game on and, and gangs of people standing there watching offices ground to a halt and they'd wheel TV TVs in. So our, our country was just, nothing was moving when the, when those games were playing. And all of a sudden now that sense of dread after game seven was a sense of hope that we can still pull this thing off. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's interesting you say that because I was in second grade And I watched every, you know, attended game one. I watched every game. um, And, and for game eight, uh, they brought, they wheeled the television into our classroom. And we had probably uh, 30 kids sitting there and the teachers. And um, there was a couple of other classrooms that got TVs as well. Uh, 
the TV wasn't big enough to wheel into a, a gymnasium and have the entire school there. <laughs> but somehow our teacher was a big hockey fan and had pull and got the TV into our class. So here I am in second grade. The TV comes in. I remember how grainy and snowy the picture was with the rabbit ears on top of the TV that sometimes would get adjusted, try to get a little bit better reception and, uh, and watch the game. And, and to this day, I mean, I can't talk about it without getting emotional because the entire third period was absolute chaos on ice. Um, Coupled with the fact of what was going on behind the scenes the Soviet gold judges would not turn on the red light when Canada scored. <laughs> All right. And, and it was like the, the officials, Scott, why don't you talk to everybody about the two referee system and who these officials were uh, specifically in the Soviet union for, for the four games there. So they, they had agreed in the beginning that they would use again, thinking it was going to be this easy series, not too intense um, international officials. So there was uh, some amateur officials that worked the games in Canada. There was uh, a couple of Americans, a couple of Canadians, and then they had the European officials lined up to do the games in Moscow. And um, a couple of them were from West Germany, which was a communist country under Soviet command basically at the time and so the sense was that these guys were feeling the heat when they made calls and uh, the games were just an absolute joke from the officiating standpoint these guys just weren't qualified to officiate a game with the caliber of player that was involved in this series on both teams and Isn't it Joseph Kampala Joseph Kampala was a public enemy number one in Canada yes and the <laughs> They had agreed to, it was funny because after the Toronto game where the Soviets went off the ice crazy about the officiating and Harry Sinden and agreed to change the pairings uh, for the final two games in Canada, thinking no big deal and that maybe he'd get a favor back before it was over, not so much. And so they had the, the nickname, it was Batter, Batter and Compella were the two West German officials and they were nicknamed Batter Bad and Worse. Yeah, <laughs> and I worse. remember Bad, bad and Batter, Batter, yeah. <laughs> bad yeah. and Batter, Batter and Worse. <laughs> and the Soviets are trying to pull the strings that, that they would work the final game. And, of course, Canada said not a chance. And uh, anyway, it, it, there was all sorts of back and forth negotiations. So the Canadians ultimately got to pick one official and they got to pick the other official, which is Kampala. And you mentioned, Alan, that the third period was a zoo. Well, the whole game was a zoo. So you had the, the backdrop of this officiating controversy. And then you get in the first period, and J.P. Parisi gets called for an inter interference penalty, which was a bit of a joke. And, you know, there's so much tension and all the rest of it. And so he's angry. He goes to the box. He starts mouthing off. They give him his conduct. He comes flying out of the box, does a circle around center ice, and comes back to the penalty box, takes his stick over his head, and he's like he gives one of these, like he's going to just nail this guy over the head. And he didn't, uh, but he gets booted out of the game. And so now it just on we go. So like there were so many 
elements to this game. Like if you were writing, you'd say, God, I'm overwriting the drama here. <laughs> There's just too much going on. And then they get to after two periods and the Soviets are up 5-3 and the Canadians are thinking, well, let's just even just get a tie here and we'll be okay. And that's when the Soviets announced that, oh no, by the way, we win on goal differential if there's a tie. and Under now, international rules. Under international rules, which hadn't been. Harry Sindon says, I went to the pre-tournament meetings in Moscow back in July, and I don't remember that ever being mentioned when the rules were being spelled out, but this was typical of what was happening, the hijinks off the ice with the Soviets. And so now these got the, the Canadian players even further enraged, enraged. You get to the third period, and Harry talked to the team and he said, don't try to win it in the first five minutes, because if you do, we'll give up a goal and then we're done. It's five, three, get one, just play hard, get one, and then we'll get the next one. And if we're close in those five final five, we're closer tied in the five final five minutes, we're coming at them like they've never seen before. So that's our game plan. So as you know, they get out in the third period, Espo gets the five, four goal. Espo is the guy that drove the, the engine on so many levels in that series. Paul was the hero with the goals, but Phil was, he was the guy that drove it. And then the Cornwall goal from Phil, 5-5. Five, five. And to your point, Alan, they don't turn on the goal light. And the, the guy who was manning the goal light was a fellow, a young fellow by the name of Victor Dombrowski, who went on to be the Joseph Compella for another generation of bad Soviet officials internationally. So the circle is small and how this series affected the game on so many levels. So Alan Eagleson, who's sitting in the stands behind the penalty box scorers area, he sees the light doesn't go on. He's going nuts that the light didn't go on, and he wanted to make sure that the goal counted. So he goes flying down towards the penalty bench to make sure that it counts, to be in the face of the referees and the rest of them. And uh, in those rinks, there was a moat around the rink where the army stood to keep the fans away from the, the ice. And so when Alan tried to jump through the moat to get to the bench, uh, the army stopped him and they were roughing him up pretty good. And the Canadian bench saw all of this happening. They were starting to take him out. They were arresting yeah. him and starting to take him out. They, they're they're going to, they're, they're, God knows where he's going. Yeah, he's going to Siberia. That's where he's going. <laughs> And the Canadian players saw it and en masse emptied the bench, coaches, trainers, all the players and everybody on the ice and straight to that area. And as Alan said earlier, there was no glass around the board. They just jumped over. Peter Mahovlich jumped over the boards and he's swinging a stick at the, at the soldiers with guns. Oh my God. with guns, with guns at the time. But they managed to grab the eagle, throw him over the boards and, he ran across the ice with the team and back to the bench. And uh, there's something that happened around center ice as yes. he was making his way back uh, to the Team Canada bench. Well, it was Alan and uh, and uh, the trainer, one of the trainers from Boston, Frosty Forrestal. Uh, let's just say, give the, uh, the fans uh, your number one salute. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even the Soviet Soviet players who I talked to, who will tell you to this day, they said, like, to see that, that was just unconscionable, unfathomable in their country at that time. Like, nobody could do that 
and get away with it. But this series rewrote a lot of things and it was amazing, amazing moments. And now, it's interesting. If, oh, sorry, go ahead, if my memory serves me correct, was not, uh, and I'm just doing this off memory, Leonid Brezhnev, the um, head of the Soviet Union, wasn't he at that game? He was at all four games. And if you remember, Phil tells the story before in the introductions to game five. So everybody gives gifts in the international hockey. And as a welcoming gift to the Canadians, they had a bunch of school kids, figure skaters come out and give the players flowers, the Canadian players flowers. Well, one of the petals off the flowers falls on the ice. Phil comes out to do his introduction as he gets, gets number seven, Phil Esposito. He goes out, he goes pass over tea kettle, lands on his, on his derriere and he gets up and he gives a like a thespian on his one knee gives this royal kind of wave and he looks up and waves to Brezhnev up in a private box <laughs> <laughs> but that's I mean well god you could have had a political convention at in Montreal the night you were there Alan every politician in the country was there and uh so, because it, it was a very much a political exhibition as much as it was a hockey exhibition. But yeah, Brezhnev was there for that final game as well, watching all of this happen. And Kosygin, who was his premier, he was there as well. So all the, the whole Politburo was was there watching, all the heavyweights. Incredible. So Henderson, who's not, I mean, he is a, he's a great player in the NHL, but he's not known as like, he's not Esposito, right? He's not the big goal scorer. He gets these last three goals. And I remember when I was in grade eight, it was the 30th anniversary. Um, so I had, uh, I had the sweater that had him on it and it's at Canada in the background. And, and, you know, my parents for Christmas got me the DVDs, which were brand new at that time uh, of, of the whole thing. So, you know, there was the full retrospective done at that time. What, you know, we, we saw the reaction in Canada. You said 16 million of a population of 25 million are watching these games, Scott. What's the reaction in the Soviet Union as, you know, it goes from we got this to this is a disaster? Yeah, they had they were shocked. I mean, the players to this day are still pissed off about the outcome. There was there was sort of a mixed uh, in time. There was a mixed emotion that, you know, and the Soviets do still. Well, before the stuff that's happened recently in the world, but. They celebrated that series on every anniversary. They invited the Canadians over en masse for every anniversary and honored them. And they celebrated, and the players would tell you, they celebrated like they won the series, not Canada. But it was a victory for them of sorts. And that victory really took place on opening night with the shocking win. But they proved that they could play on that level with the quote-unquote best players in the world. And so it was a, a coming out for them at, at, at that part. So even though they lost, they claim in many ways they were winners in this series because of how well they played. But at the time, I mean, they're just, you know, shocked and stunned and crushed by the outcome. When you're up with, you know, you got three chances to put a series away. Talk to a Maple Leaf fan in Montreal last year and you get the feeling a little bit different uh, emotion involved, but you know, you got that many chances to be that thing. And again, with the, the, the political undercurrent of how important bragging rights were for politicians to lose that was devastating. 
So let's talk about the last five minutes of the game. Canada tied it up. It's 5-5. Can you take us to the last five minutes and tell everybody what happened? Well, as I mentioned, uh, Sindon had said, you know, if they're going to play these shenanigans, let's just win this bloody thing outright. We've got them on their heels now. Uh, and the, the Soviets did play, you know, a, a very defensive game in that third period, almost like we'll just nurse this thing home and everything's going to be all right, which was not the smartest thing to do. And then when it was 5-5, five, five, they're really on their heels. And they said that they could sense that, the, you know, that they, they tensed right up and that they were feeling it. And so the plan was just, just keep going at them, keep going at them, have the defense jump on the attack. We don't, we're going to get that goal. And uh, so they had about a minute, 30 something left. And there is a face off and Esposito's line goes on. Sindon tells uh, the Henderson line that you're up if they should come off and we have to do a change. And, uh, but there was no way Phil was coming off the ice. <laughs> that wasn't in his DNA back in the day. And so he's out there with uh, Peter Mahovlich and uh, who, again, interesting twist to it all because Parise got thrown out early in the game. Peter moved on to the wing on that line with Esposito and Cornwallis, and they were a great line in that game. And uh, so they, uh, anyway, they end up getting the puck down into the Soviet zone. And as it goes in, Henderson and Ron Ellis says, I've never seen this happen in my life. And I'm sitting next to him and he's my best friend. He starts hollering at, at Mahovlich to come off the ice, come off the ice. And Peter said, I was coming anyway. And then he starts yelling at me and then I'm thinking they want to change. So he says he comes off or why he couldn't come off because he was on the, the far, the far boards, uh, which was just as well as it turned out. And so Mahovlich comes off, Henderson jumps on. The Soviets, very uncharacteristic that they, they gave up pucks. They never dumped pucks around boards and tried to wring it out of the zone, but they tried to wring it out of the zone that time. And Cornwallis intercepted it at the hash marks on the board, far boards. Henderson's streaking towards the goal. He calls for the puck. Cornwallis throws the puck across. Henderson gets tied up in the defense a bit, lunges, misses the puck, goes sliding into the backboards. And he tells me in the book, he said, you know, it's, uh, all of this is in a split second. He said, but all I could think of was I scored the goal in game six. I scored the goal in game seven. I could score the goal here. He said, it just the stuff that goes through your head in a split second in those circumstances. And so he emerges from the back of the net. The two Soviets misplay the puck with Phil. Phil slides the puck on net. As he said, how Trecek ever got gave up that rebound is beyond me. That worst piece of goaltending he had seen at that moment. The rebound goes to Paul and Henderson has scored for Canada. 34 seconds left in the game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember the team Canada bench, the entire bench emptied Dryden skated. Dryden was in net skated the length of the ice. And uh, it was one of the most incredible goal celebrations you can ever see with 34 seconds still left in the game. And there was like, there was trainers, there was players who weren't dressed for the game because everybody was around their bench for safety reasons more than anything at at the time. But a a bunch of those guys, you've got guys in suits on the ice celebrating with the team. And I remember Ken told me, he says, he said, I just, I just, I don't know. He said, I've never done that before, but I said, just race, 
at the end of a game and overtime, you do it. But he said, I just raced down the ice. And he said, all of a sudden I had this, this awakening in the middle of the pile that, oh my God, there's 34 seconds left. I better go back and net. <laughs> <laughs> and so back he goes. And that's, and you know, Harry said, he said, when you see a goal like that, he said, you want to look at the clock and just see two seconds. Mm-hmm. He said, but I look up and I see 34 seconds. And I said, he said, boys, 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 we know what they can do. Just we got to pay attention here. And so even so, the Soviets did uh, get put a, they got across center and it looked like they were getting a rush and they broke it up. But uh, yeah, I mean, a celebration like no other at that point. And, you know, another little sidebar story to uh, to the heroics of that last game of Espo and what he did scoring, setting up the last two. Uh, scoring the, the first and the third period and then the, setting up the last two. And then Paul with his heroics is after his game five, Henderson had slid into the boards after a scoring chance or scoring a goal rather to put them up in that game three to one. And he suffered a concussion. And when they got him to the dressing room, the doctors and Sinden, but mostly the doctors said, Paul, you're done. You got a concussion. You can't play. Take your gear off. And Harry came in and told him, he says, Paul, take your gear off. And Paul begged him. He said, you got to let me go back. He said, it can't end this way. I just can't end the series like this. And they did let him go back. And and after that game, Phil had had some heart palpitations. And uh, so they quietly took him to a, a hospital, hospital in Moscow and did some testing and whatnot. And all they determined that he didn't have a heart attack or anything like that, but I forget the medical term for it, but they determined that he has a big heart bigger than some other people, most other people. And uh, for whatever reason, with all the stress and, uh, you know, get playing as hard as he was and everything else, I guess it started to, uh, to act up in whatever way, but he was fine. But you think of, and we saw how big that heart was by the end of the series but you think of how history might have been different had those two players left the series after game five. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. incredible. I'd never yeah. heard that before. That, that is amazing. So uh, after the eight games and Paul Henderson scoring the winning goal in six, seven, and eight, does he belong in the, in the hall of fame? To me, he does. I know a lot of people use that argument about the bigger body of work, but I think first of all, to be selected to that initial roster, uh, then to be selected to the opening night roster and play all eight games. When you think of all the stars that were invited, that makes you a pretty special player and his career WHA and NHL was pretty good. He was a very good player. And then to do what he did on that stage from start to finish, uh, you know, he scored goals throughout the series and then obviously almost four consecutive game winners. And just for the, what that series meant to the game, I, I think he should be. And I like the guy who gave up the goals is in and should be. Uh, we've added Yakishev in recent years and should. Yep. He yep. deserves to be in as well. But, you know, we don't measure them and it's not the NHL Hall of Fame, so they should be in. But we measure them in different ways in that, you know, they won Olympics and Worlds, but they didn't always face the greatest competition. We didn't send our best 
to those competitions. And, um, and then they did face the best in this one and then close to the best in the 74 series. So if you're allowed to look at them through a different lens, then I think we should look at Paul and his admission in a different lens as well. And I think he's very worthy of it. Completely agree. I think uh, if there's anyone worthy of being uh, inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, it's certainly Paul Henderson, um, especially with the heroics from from this series. Uh, Just switching gears for one second. um, I was in Moscow probably around 12 years ago. I've been there many, many times. And I had an opportunity to sit down with Alexander Yakushev who was working with one of the uh, Russian ice hockey teams at the time. And uh, we were meeting over a client of mine uh, and whether he was going to be allowed to sign an NHL contract entry level and come over. And I had a, a translator with me and we started talking and I told him that I was in at game one of the series, the summit series in 72. And his demeanor changed immediately. And he got into storytelling mode a little bit. And we spent about 30 minutes just talking about the series. Um, And when we talked about the final result, the one thing that I came away from was how bitter he remained over the fact they didn't win the series. And, and yes, very much the fact that they won game one and left Canada up 3-1 when everyone predicted a shellacking of epic proportions turned into a big win for Soviet hockey. Uh, and then 74 in the WHA series, uh, the Soviet Union won that series. Um, Russian club teams like Central Army and Spartak would come over and and routinely beat NHL teams throughout the 70s. Uh, But it really all started with 72, where the Soviet quote-unquote amateurs were really now considered to be on on the level of of the NHL stars and maybe even better in some respects. And we saw a lot of things happen with hockey development in North America that took on many of the tactics uh, and training methods that the Soviets were using for years, you know, off ice conditioning, um, certain things that they did off the ice uh, was really revolutionary. And, and, And a lot of that, you know, people like Scotty Bowman, took a a real interest in how the Soviets trained and and practiced and brought a lot of that uh, to the NHL and to hockey development in North America. No, absolutely. And um, to your point about their disappointment is uh, Yakishev said, he said, he got the same box set DVDs that you got, Adam. The only difference is he said, I never took them out of the box. They're still, <laughs> they're still sitting on a shelf at home. <clears throat> and he said, they'll never be opened by me. He said, maybe my family one day will, but he said, they'll never be opened by me. And that's the bitterness that still exists to this day. And yeah, it was a win for the system, but it wasn't a win for the players. 
at that time. And and to your point, Alan, yes, I mean, and that's the title of the series, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever is out of that. Yeah, we we had Canada Cups. We had the NHL tours. We had rendezvous. We had Europeans coming over en masse. And once the politics of, you know, where the Iron Curtain came down, then players didn't have to defect to come over. They were allowed to come over and play in the NHL. And as Phil says in the book, he said, you know, we got all these players of different nationalities, but he says, we don't think of them as a Russian or a Czech or a Swede or a, an American or a Canadian anymore. We just think of them as great players who want to do the same thing. We win a championship, win a Stanley cup, that type of thing. So, and then, you know, in terms of both those teams learn from style of play, the Soviets and Yakushev was one who talked about it to the day that you can't teach Canadian, but that attitude that they never say die that they're coming at you to the last second uh, and don't take your foot off the pedal. And that's what they did in that series, the Soviets. But that style of play, the training, the practicing, all of that just evolved of learning from each other and the game became bigger and better for it. The, the world, the hockey world opened up as a result of that series. How, how long was it, guys? And, and forgive me, because I don't actually know the answer to this question. How long was it before the first Russian players started to defect to the NHL? Well, they saw Calgary had a guy named Priyakin who came over in the 80s. And there was Makarov, I think, as well in Calgary, too. Right? Yes. And, uh, you know, the, obviously the Stasny's coming over from Czechoslovakia, which was, you know, similar circumstance. They had to defect to come over where the big ones. And then the Detroit Red Rings were. Nedomansky, I think, was the first. Which one, sorry? That's Love Nedomansky. Ned, big Ned with the Toros, yeah, in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. So there was uh, several in that, sort of, the, I guess, probably in the 80s more than, or no, Ned would have been the 70s. Right. And then there was more that defected in the 80s, you know, in Beret and some of those guys. McGillney, yeah. McGillney. Um, um, Peter Svoboda with the Canadians at their draft. Yeah. yeah. When he was uh, hiding in the dressing room before yeah. uh, Sir Savard drafted him. Yeah, wow, absolutely. So, but then once the Iron Curtain went down, then the doors opened, and and the game changed forever from that the, the personality of the game and the, the cosmopolitan nature of the game changed at that point forever. And I and I like it that you know you you see it that yeah we don't think of guys as being you know you, you got players going for trophies and it's just he's a Tampa guy or he's a Toronto guy it's it's not a Swede he's not a Finn he's not a whatever it's our mind it took a long time for that mindset to change through the 70s and uh uh you know with the chicken Swedes and all that sort of stuff that especially here in Toronto with it's the dumbest thing going the hardest nose player I ever seen was Boris Salmi yeah people <laughs> yeah. call him a chicken Swede like are you kidding me <laughs> crazy yeah. 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 It was good for the world and it was good for the game. Grew at everything. So. Absolutely. So flash the. Yeah, please do. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you you would do that. It uh, truly is a a remarkable book on the 50th anniversary of the series. Um, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. It's a, it's a wonderful read. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for sharing uh, your your time. You've been very generous with it. 
for uh, sharing some of the incredible behind the scenes stories. Um, I, I, I almost lost it there for a second. I'm glad I held it all together. Um, uh, it was probably one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had in a long, long time. Well, thank you very much. And uh, both you and, and Adam and, uh, and I, you know, I think this conversation, you know, yeah, I want to sell books, but I think it's, it's important because this is a chapter in history mm-hmm. and 50 years is a long time. And we're losing more and more people who are around, sadly, at that time. Uh, but it's something that shouldn't be forgotten if we can, uh, you know, inform and educate and hopefully entertain other generations as to how important and significant and magnificent it was, then I think that's a great thing too. And this is a, a, a beautiful form for it. And I'll give you one last story before I go, because it always makes me laugh. And so I don't want you choked up at the end, Alan. So, <laughs> so Peter Mahovlich, who's one of their, was a tremendous hockey player, scored that great shorthanded goal in game two. One of the great funny guys, characters of the game is, uh, is he had said to, uh, to Trechak, he said, you know what? It's a good thing you let that goal in in game eight. He says, why is that? He says, well, it made you famous. He said, if you'd, if you'd made the save and won the series, you'd be driving a cab in Moscow right now. <laughs> wow. Wow. To one of the best goalies who's ever lived. Yes. <laughs> well, him, and Dennis, him and Dennis Hall are another great character, pranking threat yet so amazing yeah Yeah. all right well scott thank you very much again uh and we'll be seeing you down the road thank you both take care all right thank you show me the money this has been agent provocateur with alan walsh and adam wild powered by sports interaction canada's sports book Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN.